First reading this morning is Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Second reading, Psalm 51, 3 through 4. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Good morning, everybody. Uh, just a couple things. Uh, as, as we were saying a second ago, we, we really had a good outing yesterday. There's still three of those left. Uh, we're not doing Easter Sunday, but we are doing next Sunday, and then the two following Easter Sunday, if memory serves. Um, if you'd like to sign up, it doesn't matter which one you sign up for. Um, those are just ways for us to designate different groups. Um, so uh, just, just sign up for any of them. And if you can't work the Google Doc thing um, or the interwebs or anything like that, you can text me and, and, or Sheree and we can sign you up. So really appreciate everybody coming out today. yesterday. It's great to see uh, the Harbors today. I haven't said hey to them yet, but I saw them across the room. Great to have them here. Um, Matt's going to be preaching for me still, May 16th. That makes me nervous because I show up, nah, it was this. And I'm like, ah, no, so he's, he's supposed to preach May 16th. We're going to be going to a funeral in Illinois. It's also great to see my brother, Ken Griffin here. Um, I don't know, he just, just walked in a minute ago. Um, so say hey to, to these folks. We're, we're really grateful to be together today. All right, so this is going to be the third installment in our series dealing with um, conflict in the kingdom of heaven, conflict in the kingdom of heaven. And we're having some, as long as we're zooming this, um, we're, we're having some difficulties with the way these things sync together. So there's often a, a very pregnant pause after we hit the clicker. Uh, Corey and Nick have been doing a great job of keeping it going relatively well, as good as they can. I don't know how they're doing it, but they're pulling off minor miracles. So we really appreciate them back there. So there could be some delays today with some of these slides. Hopefully not. But this is what we're talking about in this little mini-series inside our 2021 theme of fellowship, uh, loving one another because God first loved us. You're still growing out of 1 John 4.19. This you're focusing on uh, love within the church and what that looks like. So conflict is one of the main things that could can uh, sort of, you know, throw a wrench in the works. Uh, this is often why our fellowship isn't, you know, humming along on all all eight cylinders, you might say. And so we're, we're doing a little mini-series on um, dealing with conflict in the kingdom of heaven, because after all, the fellowship that we're going to have is going to be a fellowship between and among sinners, because guess what? That's what we all are. Um, and, and we've been taking our cues from the Sermon on the Mount, and we've observed up to this point both the urgency of reconciliation and also what it takes uh, to reconcile. This is an approach to conflict resolution that chooses, in Jesus's words, peacemaking over anger and retribution and disaffection. And, and so now today we want to turn our attention to the problem of sin. An offense committed by one Christian against another Christian, or at least the perception of such a sin, uh, is often the cause of conflict and estrangement in the first place. So today and next week, we will unpack how each of us responds to sin. And I mean that both from the perspective of uh, the sinner and the sin again. So we'll look at 
this from the perspective of the wrongdoer and, and, and from the perspective of the one who is wrong. We're, we're uh, all of us really, both offender and offended at some point in our lives, right? We've been the one who've committed the sin. We've been the one who felt sinned against. And in fact, sometimes we are both offender and offended during the same episode of conflict. I'd say that's the case most usually, my experience. It's not just a clear so-and-so was the perpetrator, so-and-so was the victim. Well, yeah, in that instant, and in one per person's perspective, but if you, those things don't happen in a vacuum. And so you've got this long, you know, sort of interchange where it just, the, the ante gets up and then up more and then up more as each feels, uh, you know, violated or victimized and justified in their response. And so we're often both offender and offended all at the same time. Question is, how do I respond to my sin? How do I respond to my sin? All right? We're going to look at that today from the perspective of the wrongdoer. If I'm the one who sinned against my brother or sister, how do I respond to my own sin? And while there are numerous elements um, included in how we should respond to uh, to our sin, we uh, they can be summed up in terms of operator error. 90% of the time it is. Um, you, we can sum all these up, the, the elements of a proper attitude or disposition toward the sins that we've committed. I'm going to use this phrase, the a posture of penitence. I'm talking about a mental posture, not a physical posture. An attitude or a disposition, a mental posture of penitence. All right, so what we want to talk about, uh, first of all, is our ability to see how important this is. This is not going to be something we are adept at, um, you know, have a proclivity toward, if we don't appreciate its importance in the first place. First of all, let's, let's do some definitions. There, there are three Bible terms that are very key. They're overlapping, I think, but they're key elements of penitence. The first of those is repentance. Repentance means basically to change one's mind or per perception about something. It's the word metaneo. Um, it, it's a change of, of thinking about your sin that results in a change of action. Um, we, we, you do a U-turn, as, as it's often been said before, but it starts with the, the mental perception about it, and that's grasping and appreciating its importance and why it's such a big deal, but it results in a change of behavior, at least ideally. The second term is confession. And confession is the idea of admitting your sin or owning your sin. If you look at the Latin derivation of the word confess, it's to line yourself up with, uh, it's to, to say with, to speak with the charge. I, here's the charge that's been levied against me. I am that. It's to own it, basically, as we would say today. So confession. Thirdly is the word contrition. And to be contrite means having a sincere regret or a sorrow over my sin. I get the, the full gravity of my sin and especially how it feels to the other person. And I'm really deeply, truly um, regretful about that. So repentance, confession, contrition, we're not going to parse out the nuances of all of these uh, distinct terms. We're going to lump them together because they do overlap and they do bleed into one another. Um, and we're, we're going to take them all together under the heading of penitence, okay? That's what we mean when we say uh, adopting a posture of penitence, because together these things manifest the proper disposition, the proper mental attitude toward the wrongs that we have committed. And in short, then, 
being penitent means taking complete, unqualified ownership of my sins, having a deep empathy for the person that I've hurt, all right? And then a sincere desire to repair the damage and to change my conduct going forward from this point. All of that is necessary to have a true posture of penitence. And penitence is crucial to our standing with God. If you're interested in your relationship with God and having God accept you and approve you eternally, that you can do no better uh, than to begin with penitence, with things like uh, repentance and, and contrition. Um, Isaiah 57 is just one of numerous passages in the Bible that says something about how God is essentially looking for contrite people. He's not looking for people who've performed perfectly because he would find zero of them. They don't exist. No church has one of them. <laughs> All right? There's been one person to ever live that way. And he, he came from Nazareth a long time ago. Here's what Isaiah says. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, God. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is, these are the, this is the raw material that God works with. These are the kinds of people they can do anything with. So if we don't begin with a, a true disposition of contrition and confession and repentance, our relationship with God could be at stake. So that's, that, that, that's sort of a sidebar point, but I think it's one that we got to start with. Our point, we're really talking about our, our fellowship among ourselves, which grows out of that vertical fellowship with God. So we need to talk about how critical this posture of penitence is in our relationship with one another. And I think that's why the Sermon on the Mount says that it's imperative that we quickly address any sin that we may have committed against another. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says in Matthew 5, um, if you're offering your, your gift at the altar, you're at the temple, you're going to do some act of devotion and piety toward God. And then you remember that your brother has a charge against you. He thinks you've done something to him. What does Jesus say to do? Leave your gift at the altar first. Go be reconciled to your brother. It's a kingdom priority to seek reconciliation. Um, it prevents alienation between us. It, it prevents our estrangement and disaffection uh, among ourselves. To, not to acknowledge my sin is to deepen discord. It is to jeopardize fellowship. So one of the best things we can do to undermine fellowship is deep, you know, sort of uh, deprioritize, is that a word? Uh, reconciliation. I'm not too worried about my sin. Well, good luck on having fellowship. And let me suggest another way that admitting our sins fosters connection. Being people who have a proclivity, a group of people, a family of people here who have a proclivity toward admitting sin readily, confessing sin readily, actually fosters connection. It's interesting to me uh, that in James 5.16, we find one of those one another passages. Nick is leading this excellent study on Wednesday nights on all these one another. There's so many do something one another with regard to one another. One of those is confess. Interesting to me that in James 5.16, he writes, confess your sins to one another. He's not talking about a vertical confession to God here, but a confession uh, um, among ourselves and between ourselves. 
Why is that? Well, a fellowship is about sharing something in common, and that's the definition of fellowship, to, to jointly participate or share something in common. It comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means commonness, communality, things like that, sharing. If that's what fellowship is, well, then think about it. Aside from our fellowship, our sharing in our redemption in Jesus, is there anything that binds us together in common experience more than the fact that we're sinners? I mean, we're a lot of things. We come from different parts of the country. You know, we have different races, different political persuasions, different temperaments, different interests, hobbies, jobs. We, we are diverse as we could be in, in, in the Lord's church. What is the most democratizing thing in the world? Isn't the point of Romans 1 through 3 to answer that with the word sin? The pagans did not have God in their knowledge, chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3, but hold, hold up, Jews. You had the law. You haven't lived up to the law. You're accusing people of being adulterers and murderers and thieves. There is none righteous. No, not one. It's All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. There's nothing more democratic than sin, nothing more in common than sin, nothing more one another than sin. And so denying our sin doesn't fortify fellowship. We might think it does. Well, I'm coming to church. I need to get my act together. My kids need to be just perfect. No, 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 no. I better whoo, be dressed up and, you know, it's almost the opposite, honestly. We need to be more real than ever in our relationship with one another. And that's not to condone sin, but the Bible doesn't teach us that because you become a Christian, sin's a thing of the past. Paul wrote Romans 7 in the present tense, not the past tense when he said, that which I would do, I don't do. That which I don't want to do, I end up doing. He just, wretched man that I am, not was, am. Jesus is the only way he has, a, but Jesus comes to us in our sins, not to condone them, sin that grace may abound. Paul says, God forbid. But there's a lot of room between that extreme and the extreme of acting like we don't have sin. Denying our sin does not strengthen our fellowship. Let me suggest to you it weakens it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a, a great little, little tract, really, uh, it's so, so short, called Life Together, that he wrote prior to the rise of, uh, you know, the extreme Nazism. It's kind of when it was starting to go. Uh, it's just a little uh, meditation on, on different aspects of fellowship. He said this about the importance of confessing, confessing our sins to having real community. Read with me. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as doubt, devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. You don't really have fellowship as long as you're acting like everybody is perfectly devout. You won't have a breakthrough to real commonality and community. Living life together, as long as we have this pretense that we're not sinners. It's a theoretical problem that we admit, but not a real one. You know, brokenness, we always throw that word around. It's real. It's not just some idea. We really are all broken. We're all jacked up. I got a list for you if you want to know mine. 
Well, probably I'm not going to share them all with you, but um, I don't know if you get if we get that. If we don't, God can't do anything with us. You're not coachable to the greatest coach in the universe if you can't admit you're wrong. And so look what he says here. We don't have fellowship as long as we uh, just act like we're all perfectly devout. The pious fellowship, starting about midway down, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. And then here's the takeaway from this quote. In confession, the breakthrough community takes place. So penitence is important to our fellowship. Let me suggest something else to you. Secondly, penitence is also very difficult. However important we may agree it to be, if we're honest, it is really hard to adopt this mental attitude that is comfortable with penitence, with things like contrition, confession, real repentance. There's a journalist from Wisconsin that was syndicated back in the 80s and 90s pretty widely. He's retired now, a guy named Doug Larson. He said this, riffing off of Alexander Pope's famous quote, to err is human, to admit it, superhuman. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us what to do when a brother or sister sins against us, and he also tells us why we should. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Look at this beautiful result of restoring the relationship after the sin has been dealt with. You've gained your brother. That family bond is back. That's a wonderful thing. One of the sweetest things in the world is, is fellowship between brothers and sisters. And you gain it when you deal with the sin. But I want you to notice what it all hangs on. If he listens to you. When a brother says or a sister says, you've sinned, you've hurt me. None of this goodness comes about without that person listening. Taking it in how we respond to our own sins that we've committed is crucial, but also very difficult because this is sometimes a very big if, right? If he listens, okay, great. I'm going to go talk to him. Big if. Why? Because if we're honest, assuming a mental posture of penitence is very difficult. I've been quoting Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He talks about this in, in that book. Genuine repentance may be one of the most difficult acts for a person, he says, let alone a community to perform. It is not just that we do not like being wrong, that's a thing, but that almost invariably the others are not completely right either. Most confessions come as a mixture of repentance, self-defense, and even some lust for revenge. We admit wrongdoing, justify ourselves, and attack all in one breath. I don't know if you can relate to that. I can. I've been guilty of that so many times. So our difficulty with penitence 
it is revealed among other ways in our, our struggles that we have offering genuine apologies, right? Um, somebody give me an example real quickly of a, of a lame non-apology apology. We Surely you know what I'm talking about. What's that? I'm sorry, that's a great, that's classic. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Well, did you or not? Because acknowledging that you did is literally 90% of what we're talking about. That's a way to apologize and, and maintain, you know, you're still in control. There is a vulnerability associated with an apology. Amen? It's awful. It, it's really difficult. That's what Wolf is talking about here. We're playing games and we act like it's not. Um, I apologize, but you... Right? I mean, these are, there's a million of these. And sometimes apologies, it, it's not just that we're blame shifting, you're mixing some blame shifting in there, or we're uh, using these guilt minimizing phrases, like the one Michael talked about. Sometimes apologies are just non-existent. I, I, I've had I struggled myself with uh, this penchant for self-vindication in my life for a long time, just a confession try to model what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so I bought this book after doing some internet searches about this problem. It's by a couple of social psychologists um, named Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, people who are in psychology and that kind of thing probably know these names. Do you know them? those names? I, 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 I know there's a lot of fields of uh, counseling and you know psychology and all that, so it's not just one thing. Um, like somebody says to me, oh, you, you did history? Um, what can you tell me about French women's history in the 14th century? I'm like, nothing, nothing, not a thing. History's big. It's everything that's happened since the dawn of time to now. So, you know, that's why we have specialties. But this, look at the title here. Mistakes were made, and then in parentheses, but not by me. Why we justify foolish beliefs, bad decisions, and hurtful acts. It's really a book on self-vindication. And let me tell you about the title, Mistakes Were Made. Do you see the passive language there? Well, mistakes were made. It comes from um, a, a, a classic response from Henry Kissinger back in the early 70s. Um, he, was in the, he was in the Nixon administration, and he was charged with committing war crimes against Vietnam and Cambodia uh, in his role in the Nixon administration. So he responds to the charge, denial, 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 and finally says, well, Mistakes were made by the administration. The problem was he was the national security advisor and secretary of state. So he kind of was the administration when it came to foreign affairs. So instead of saying, yes, I made mistakes, he did the classic mistakes were made. Who made them? What were they? Not addressing that. It's a kind of acknowledgement that doesn't really acknowledge the gravity and the hurt and the culpability. So they use that as the whole title. That's what the book's about. How, the zillions of ways that humans do this, from really powerful to just everyday interactions in our families and with our friends and neighbors and so on. And um, indeed, this impulse to self-justification appears to run uh, really deeply in us neurologically. Um, let me give you a quote here about kind of what the book's about, essentially. Here's what they say. As fallible human beings, all of us share the impulse to justify ourselves and avoid taking responsibility for actions that turn out to be harmful, immoral, or stupid. But it goes further than that. And here's the rub. Here's the kind of scary thing. It goes further than that, just neurologically. 
Most people, when directly confronted by evidence that they are wrong, do not change their point of view or plan of action, but justify it even more tenaciously. So there's a, there's a doubling down when you find contrary evidence that what you did was okay or what you thought was wrong. Most people, when they hear the other evidence, the first inclination is not to go, I need to change my mind. It's to double down and say that evidence is bad. You're wrong in saying that about me. Why? Here it is. The engine that drives this self-justification is the unpleasant feeling called cognitive dissonance. This book's really about cognitive dissonance theory. A state of tension that occurs when a person holds two thoughts that are psychologically inconsistent with each other. Now, they're in your head at the same time are, I'm a good person, I did good things, and this person's saying I just blew their face off and I'm a bad per I was a bad person. Or I had this whole worldview about something based on what I thought was evidence, and I heard this other contrary body of evidence, and it doesn't go with it. And they're both in my head now. And that is so uncomfortable to us as humans that it produces, as, as they say here, mental discomfort that ranges from minor pangs to deep anguish. People don't rest easy until they find a way to reduce that cognitive dissonance. Dissonance is a, a term that comes from music. So you got two notes that harmonize. It's beautiful, and we all go, ah, whether you know music or not, you recognize it. Two dissonant notes, there's like a note and then one right beside it, and they don't, they go, you know, I can't do two notes at once. But if you could, if I could sing two notes at once, you would recognize, you go, wow, my goodness, you, you, you know, it, you know, the, the, the sixth grade, you know, strange recital has some of these and chorus and no, no offense, they're, they're getting there. But um, anyway, we, we can't handle it. We don't, it's so painful, the dissonance that we, to, to, to make that go away, start self-justifying, all right? The book is just chock full of references to hundreds, literally hundreds of studies have shown that most people just double down rather than modify their views or admit wrong. They set to work justifying how what they did or what they believed was actually even more correct than they first thought. Because that gets rid of the cognitive dissonance. Reminds me of Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I mean, if something makes the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty elemental in the human condition, right? The Sermon on the Mount is like the gist of the gist. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. Here's the sermon saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And if something makes one of those paragraphs, it made the cut. Think of all the other things that are true about us. There's only three chapters. I think the fact that something is admitted into the Sermon on the Mount and collected by, spoken by Jesus, collected by Matthew, and for perpetuity is, is telling us this is really a fundamental problem and tendency we must have to have, and we must, we must deal with it. Inability to see or reluctance to see our own mistakes quickness to see other people's. Augustine often prayed to be delivered from this very tendency. He said famously, oh Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. This posture, this attitude toward penitence, welcoming penitence instead of resisting it is so difficult. It may, that may be why repentance is spoken of sometimes in the scriptures as a divine gift. It's something that God actually grants us. 
couple of passages where we can see this. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. Isn't that an odd way to put that from some of our perspectives? You need to repent. No, he's saying he gave them repentance. God did. Or 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. One of the tallest orders in the universe right there. Anyway, Paul, that God may perhaps grant them repentance. All you can do is what you can do. It's God, God has to grant this. And it's not, these aren't the only places where repentance is spoken of as, as a divine, kind of almost like this miraculous thing that's got to come to us from outside ourselves because we don't have the capacity on some level. And indeed, we cannot do this alone. Just through bootstraps effort, we're not going to be people who cozy up to penitence, who willingly confess and are contrite and repent. We can't do it alone. But we're not alone, and that's our third point. The posture of penance, penitence, however difficult, is also possible. One of the coolest things the Bible teaches us. It's possible because despite our, our depraved tendency to, in the words of Isaiah, go astray, to turn everyone to his own way, God makes it possible. God offers us this gift by taking our sins upon himself at the cross. Now, let's think about this language of gift vis-a-vis -vis, uh, culpability, personal responsibility. You know, think about the way God gives most gifts in the Bible and how he talks about them. So repentance is a gift, but it's a gift that calls for our cooperation in receiving it. That, that's like many of God's gifts. Think of Genesis 1. Um, Adam and Eve are made, you know, the people are the two image bearers of God, male and female created them. The very next thing said, first thing said to humanity in all the Bible is, all right, now I'm calling you to join me in this process, this, this, uh, this, this beautiful task of having dominion over all creation. You're my co-regents. You're, you're going to co, you know, uh, manage it with me. It's like a father building a business and saying to his son or daughter, I want you to come along and be a part of it. That's the picture. He then says, Right at the end of Genesis 1, I'm giving you everything to eat, all these trees and all these fruits and whatnot. But then in chapter 2, verse 5, it says there was no, there were no, you know, uh, there was no vegetation like that because God had not yet created man um, to harvest it, to plant it. So is God doing it, Genesis 1, or is man doing it, Genesis 2? The answer is yes. Think about the, 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 the beauty of a church that's growing. Paul plants, Apollos waters. Who gives the increase? God. It's always God and us. Almost everything's like, it's a gift. We would never be able to do it on our own, right? We didn't make it up. We don't have the power on our, but he's, he doesn't create robots. He wants this relationship with a real live volitional creature on the other side, just like a marriage. Or the other person has ideas and can contribute. And so that's how it's a gift. It's a gift that God gives us, but it's something we've got to cooperate uh, with him in, in the reception uh, thereof. So the good news of the gospel is music to the ears of the sinner, but it's only so if we have ears to hear. 
And it's interesting to me that the very first thing that Jesus, I think I'm right about this, the very first thing, at least in the gospel of Matthew, that Jesus says to human beings, he does, there is some discourse recorded with Satan, but I believe the very first thing that Jesus says to human beings in the gospel of Matthew is this. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is nigh. It's here. And to be ready for that, the number one thing we can do is to have this posture toward our sins, toward our wrongdoings, that is characterized by penitence. Man, it's so fundamental. And then the very first words in the Sermon on the Mount concern our, this posture of penitence. In Matthew 5, Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them this discourse on the kingdom. And what are the first things he say, says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones who'll get the kingdom. Not the rich and confident and people with a great track record. No, the impoverished, the spiritually impoverished, the people who know they don't know. They know they don't even know what they don't know yet. I'm just bringing you my needy self. It's like the great uh, parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee puffs out his chest and starts listing off the reasons God should approve him. He's pretty confident. The tax collector, standing far off, smites his own chest and says, be merciful, God, to me, I am a sinner. And Jesus says it's that guy who goes down to his house justified, not the other guy. This is pretty crucial stuff, but it's also possible to have a kingdom mentality toward our, toward our wrongdoing and not just a conventional worldly mentality toward it. We need a fundamental openness to seeing our own faults. We need to develop, folks, a disposition for self-correction. That that's our sort of, that's how we twitch. You know, that's our instinctual reaction, self-correction rather than self-vindication. Psalm 141 says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Notice the openness here to correction, to rebuke even. Proverbs repeatedly links this ability to hear a, repro a reproof, to take it in. However painful the resulting dissonance. It links it to having wisdom. Proverbs 15, 31, for instance, says, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction actually is despising himself or herself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And when it's connected to, to wisdom in the, in, the, in the book of Proverbs, it's basically connecting it to godliness. Kind of the whole ball of wax, or the beginning of it. <clears throat> and so what's the upshot? When those initial pangs of dissonance tempt us to put up a wall, that's universal. We need to reinterpret those things as potentially life-giving. The ear that listens to a life-giving reproof. 
This is echoed in the book by Tavris and Aronson that I referred to earlier. So it's a really depressing book for several chapters. I was telling my son about it on a hike a couple weeks ago, and he said, so what, what's the solution? He, he really, you know, who doesn't resonate with this? Who does this not resonate with, I should say, right? You're like, I get that. And I was basically telling him, I'm a compulsive self-vindicator. And I, I, I just really want to get, I just want that burden lifted. I want to be free from that. And so I'm just, you know, these people aren't, it's not a theology book. It's a social psychology book. What's the answer? I'm like, I don't know yet. I've been reading for, you know, a couple hundred pages. And, but when they start talking about what you can do about it, this is one of the main things you can do about it. You think about fellowship and how we benefit from our relationship with other people. It's not just me and God, you and God. It's us, the body of Christ with arms and legs and eyes and feet. Here's, here's what they say. Our greatest hope of self-correction lies in making sure we are not operating in a hall of mirrors in which all we see are distorted reflections of our own desires and convictions. We need a few trusted naysayers in our lives. Critics who are willing to puncture our protective bubble of self-justification and yank us back to reality if we veer too far off. That's, you could just put in theology words here. You could just say church, right? Fellowship, brotherhood, accountability, and it's the same logic. So let us conclude with three incentives to embrace this posture of penitence, okay? Three takeaways. First of all, or, or re, just trying to give us reasons to take this seriously and to, and to see this as a positive thing, even though it's painful. First incentive, personal liberation. Freedom. You know, while we may try to stuff it away someplace, the guilt of our sins can be like walking around with a ball and chain. No? You know the feeling? David talks about this in his Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Another thing sin does that we need to be freed from, liberated from, it creates a kind of self-alienation. An internal division. We become kind of two or three or four people. And that is also very painful and dislocating. You forget who you are. Because you got this one idea, like you, you are the embodiment of dissonance. I think I'm supposed to be this person. I go to church and they say this and I read my Bible and it says this. I hear something on the radio and it reminds me. Ew. But then I go out and I, my, my habits, my daily habits are taking me down another path. And it, it doesn't, sometimes I'm able to like, you know, blow it off, get busy. When busyness, people, people complain about addiction being substances. Busyness is one of the biggest Western addictions there is. It's a drug. It makes you not look at what you need to look at sometimes. Sidebar, but, and I'm guilty of that, personally. Um, I'm guilty of everything I've talked about today, just so you know. This is not me talking down. This is, <sighs> but here, here's what confession and repentance can do to this self-alienation, this confusion about who we truly are deep within us. Remember the prodigal son story in Luke 15? He wants what he thinks is freedom, the freedom of self-indulgence. He goes off and does his thing, spends all of his father's money in riotous living, prodigal living, and it doesn't work out. 
He's sowing the seeds of his own destruction. And thankfully, before he gets there, he resolves to repent. I want you to read how this is described, this pivot point in the, in the parable. But when he came to himself, huh? Well, here I am. How, how can I come to me if I'm here? All of me is right here. No, it is. no, that's the point. All of you isn't right there. Part of you is here and part of you is over here. You don't know who you are. You are self-alienated. Sin does that every time. It doesn't just alienate human from human and humans from God and us from the environment like Genesis 1 talks about. We become internally disintegrated and we need to be reintegrated and confession and repentance does that. When he came to himself, he said, how many, now he's thinking straight, right? I can go back to my father and be like a servant and it's way better. And he says, I'm going to, he resolves, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And so we can be free. We can be liberated personally from our guilt and this self-alienation if we will but adopt this posture of penitence. That's the first incentive. The second incentive is just the sweetness of the grace of God. What's sweeter than that? This is what David finally, or what David tasted when he finally confessed his sins of adultery and murder in the classic psalm of penitence, Psalm 51. Look what he says. Speaking to God, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give that. You will not be pleased, not ultimately with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and, notice it, contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isn't it great that our God finds so palatable, so lovable, a contrite sinner? I mean, if he didn't, where would we be? We're sinners. We can choose the contrition or not. But wow, what an incentive. You're, on the other end of that, on the far side of your penitence is the acceptance, the welcome of God. Jesus isn't impressed with people trying to prove their righteousness to him and, and before him. Instead, he offers his mercy to those who admit their sin and need. As we said earlier, this man, the sinner beating his breast with an appreciation of the depth of his wrong, goes down to his house justified rather than the sanctimonious religious guy. And thirdly, and, and this is the central point I'm going to make here about these lessons on fellowship among sinners, is that how we respond to our sin is key to strengthening our relationships with one another. Few things are more beautiful, arguably, than unity and fellowship among brothers and sisters. Psalm 133 talks about this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when, when brothers dwell in unity. When brothers and sisters are dwelling in unity, he goes, I should have done the whole thing here. It's a three-verse psalm. It's like the oil, fairly cryptic, but if you're into olive oil, you kind of you get it. Like, I'll lick that off the bottom of Aaron's beard. Man, this is some good stuff. You know, Evu, if you don't, if you're a butter person, you're probably like, what in the world? It, it, it goes ahead to say, it's like the oil dripping off of Aaron's beard. You know, just we're just, we're just rolling in, in oil and, and the, the, the harvests are great and we're just, we're living fat right now. And then he says, it's like the dew on Mount Hermon, you know? 
But it's, this is visceral, uh, you know, kind of uh, sensory language. It tastes good. It feels good. It, it looks, it's beautiful to have unity. Our sins against one another, however, threaten this family bond that we share. Notice that Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother, that's a family word, if your sister sins against you, go tell them. If they listen, you've gained your, your sister or brother back. Like the family bond has been restored. That blessed unity and fellowship is back again. What an incentive that is. Think about this. But there's something else I want us to think about as we close today. Though this can be regained when I, when I respond to my own sin as I should, when somebody brings it to my attention and I respond as I should, this fellowship, this family bond can be regained. It only happens when I listen. The whole thing's predicated on if he or she listens. Listens to what? The charge that they've committed sin. That they've hurt somebody. They've drawn a wedge, drawn a wedge or driven a wedge between people involved in former fellowship, now threatened, now jeopardized, if we listen. This beautiful fellowship that's been jeopardized can be regained when I respond to my sins as I should, when I listen to those better voices. Huh? The ones that reflect God. Those voices calling me to see my sins, to own my sins, and to repent of my sins. So I'll leave us with this question. Are we listening? Thanks a lot.